Around 2 p.m. on July 30, 1975, Jimmy Hoffa pulled his green Pontiac sedan up to the Matches Red Fox restaurant in the Detroit suburbs. The moment Jimmy entered the establishment, the waitstaff escorted him to his usual table. As former president of the Teamsters Labor Union, he was a local celebrity. But multiple run-ins with the law, a brief stint in prison, and connections with organized crime had cost Jimmy that position. Now, he was here to get it back. Jimmy was at the restaurant to meet with organized crime members Anthony Tony Pro Provenzano and Anthony Tony Jack Jackaloni. If Jimmy could settle some issues with them, he might be able to return as union president. But Tony Pro and Tony Jack never arrived. By 2.30 p.m., Jimmy was tired of waiting. He left a $20 bill on the table and went across the street to the nearest phone booth. He called his wife, Josephine, to tell her he'd be home by 4. But as Jimmy headed back to his car, a burgundy Mercury Marquis pulled up beside him. Onlookers say they saw Jimmy talk to three unidentified men. He then entered the back seat of the vehicle and was never seen again. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Monday and Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on Jimmy Hoffa, president of the Teamsters Labor Union from the late 1950s to early 1970s. Jimmy contributed to the middle-class workforce by unionizing contracts and ensuring fair practices in the workplace. But his means were hardly ethical. Jimmy accomplished much of his growth by involving the Teamsters with America's most dangerous mobsters. This episode will see how Jimmy Hoffa went from working-class hero to one of the most notorious cold cases in history— Next time, we'll take a look at the suspects, from Jimmy's closest friends to the Federal Bureau of Investigations and a notorious serial killer. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up can be really bad for you in the long run and have some terrible consequences. And this isn't a conspiracy theory. The more you let things build up, the more of a toll it can take on your mental health. I know for me, in dealing with some traumatic events in my life, I had the tendency to think, well, they've already happened, I'm okay, other people have it worse, it doesn't matter much. And through therapy, was really able to understand how those events impacted me and changed how I'd start to see the world in ways that weren't great and were sometimes making my life worse. So therapy or dealing with any traumatic events you've had 
might really help you in terms of how you can live in the present moment now. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also really easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com conspiracy today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash conspiracy. Born in 1913, Jimmy R. Hoffa was never a stranger to hard work. His father, John, was a coal miner who gave his life to the job, literally. The poor conditions in the mines led to an incurable respiratory disease. John passed away when Jimmy was seven. After his father's death, Jimmy's mother, Viola, was forced to go back to work. But she struggled to make ends meet. As a result, Jimmy dropped out of school when he was 14 to help support the family. He later landed a job as a warehouseman for Kroger's grocery store. Life in the warehouse was tough. At the time, there were hardly any regulations to ensure fair labor practices. Jimmy and his co-workers weren't allowed to leave the loading platform or take breaks. And if there were no deliveries on a given day, management refused to pay them. So in 1932, 19-year-old Jimmy took matters into his own hands and organized a strike against Kroger's grocery store. Jimmy and his co-workers refused to unload boxes of strawberries until the company met their demands. More breaks and a set payment whenever they showed up to work. Jimmy's strike caught the attention of the Teamsters Labor Union, primarily composed of warehouse and transportation workers like truckers and cab drivers. Labor unions such as the Teamsters ensured that businesses treated their employees fairly. Essentially, they saw power in numbers. If a few employees were being wronged, the union rallied all members together to make sure changes were made. And since most goods couldn't be delivered without truckers and warehouses couldn't be stocked without laborers, the Teamsters were one of the most powerful unions in the country. Because of Jimmy's organizing abilities, the Teamsters were eager to recruit him. He was young, passionate, and he knew how to rally his men. Within his first year of union membership, Jimmy was promoted to business agent for the Detroit Local 299 branch. As a business agent, Jimmy handled the union chapter's day-to-day operations. He was primarily a liaison between workers and union management. Jimmy enjoyed making a difference for the working class, but his quick ascension also made him hungry for more power. He'd do whatever it took to rise through the union's ranks, and that meant forming ties with organized crime. In the mid-1930s, a Teamsters secretary named Sylvia Pagano introduced Jimmy to a local Detroit mobster, Frank Three Fingers Coppola. Sylvia told Jimmy that Coppola could help with his career. In turn, Coppola introduced Jimmy to Anthony Tony Jack Giacalone. Tony Jack was the capo, or crew leader, for the Detroit Sicilian mob. As promised, the connection boosted Jimmy's standing within the Teamsters' union. Now, when Jimmy organized a strike, businesses didn't just face the threat of losing their workers. They also faced retaliation from the mob. 
Jimmy's connection to the union benefited the mafia as well. It gave them a cover when they intimidated business owners for so-called protection. If those businesses refused to pay up, Jimmy ordered his union to strike. More often than not, these strikes turned violent. Jimmy said that within his first year of joining the union, his scalp was laid open sufficiently wide to require stitches no less than six times. Essentially, this is how things went. The Teamsters would strike and refuse to do their jobs. In response, companies hired strikebreakers. These were men outside of the union who crossed the union's picket lines and did the job instead. Police were deployed to protect the strikebreakers. This frequently led to violent assaults on the Teamsters, so the Teamsters retaliated with arson, bombings, theft, and looting. To top it off, the Mafia sent hitmen to the business owners' homes if matters still weren't resolved. It was brutal but effective, and thanks to Jimmy Hoffa, the mob union partnership flourished. As the years passed, Jimmy used this relationship to solidify his position within the Teamsters Union. In 1952, at 39 years old, Jimmy was elected as its vice president. Three years later, he developed the Central States Pension Fund. The pension fund allowed employers to make regular contributions to the union members' retirement. Before Jimmy created it, union workers were completely reliant on Social Security to stay afloat. Jimmy oversaw the fund and controlled where the money was distributed. After a few years of contributions, the fund racked up $200 million in contributions, about $2 billion today. It was a game changer. Jimmy's direct access to the fund meant he could dip into it any time he wanted. And he wasn't shy about rewarding his friends in organized crime. In the first few years, he loaned the mafia millions from the pension fund. They used the money to build casinos in Havana, Cuba, and Las Vegas, Nevada. Jimmy wasn't exactly concerned with the legality of the arrangement, or that the money wasn't going to union members. He was willing to look the other way in exchange for a personal kickback. However, Jimmy's illicit actions eventually garnered unwanted attention from the press. Victor Riesel, an investigative reporter for the New York Journal American, caught on to his game. In 1956, he aired a radio broadcast targeting corrupt union leadership, including Teamsters leader Jimmy Hoffa. But on April 5, 1956, just a few hours after the broadcast, Riesel stepped out of a New York City restaurant and was met with a face full of acid. Riesel was permanently blinded. In August 1956, the FBI found the assailant. Their suspect was a man named Abraham Telvey. He was an associate of the Sicilian mob and probably connected to Jimmy Hoffa. But by the time the FBI tracked Telvey down, he'd already been murdered by the gangsters who put him up for the job. The attack on Riesel inspired U.S. Senator John L. McClellan to take matters into his own hands. 
He created the McClellan Committee in January of 1957. Today, it's better known as the United States Senate Select Committee on Improper Activities in Labor and Management. Senator John F. Kennedy and his brother, Senator Bobby Kennedy, were also members of the committee. Like Victor Riesel, Bobby wanted to end the Mafia's role in labor unions. Bobby knew Jimmy Hoffa was the glue that held the Teamsters and Mafia together. He was also certain Jimmy played a role in the attack on Riesel. And the senator was determined to make Jimmy answer for it. On February 26, 1957, 1.2 million Americans tuned in to watch the McClellan Committee's first hearing. Everyone wanted to see if Bobby Kennedy could take down Jimmy Hoffa. The hearings continued for the next few months, but the committee had no evidence that directly pointed to Jimmy Hoffa's involvement with organized crime. In fact, the televised hearings only made Jimmy more powerful. Americans saw him as a working-class hero, a clean and honest man. And later in 1957, Jimmy Hoffa became president of the Teamsters Union. President of the Teamsters Union or not, Bobby Kennedy wouldn't let Jimmy off so easily. It was personal now. The hearings sparked a rivalry between Jimmy and Bobby, who was convinced Jimmy was guilty. But Jimmy wouldn't be caught so easily. He obsessed over the McClellan Committee's inner workings and hired New York attorney John C. Chasty to infiltrate its offices. He wanted to spy on the committee's research. He needed to know what they had on him. So Jimmy offered Chasty $24,000, or $218,000 today, to gather that information. Except Chasty reported Jimmy's bribery attempt directly to the committee. Wanting to get back at Jimmy, Bobby Kennedy offered Chasty a job. The two formed a plan to take down Jimmy Hoffa once and for all. Chasty arranged a meeting with Jimmy and said he would give him sensitive documents from the McClellan Committee's HQ for a price. Meanwhile, Bobby planned to catch Jimmy at this meeting red-handed. On March 13, 1957, the FBI surrounded the park where Chasty and Jimmy met. They closed in on Jimmy as soon as he handed over an envelope of cash to Chasty. Jimmy was arrested and charged with bribery. Bobby was certain he had enough to convict Jimmy. Bobby was so confident, he said that if Jimmy got acquitted, he'd jump off the Capitol building. Unfortunately for Bobby Kennedy, it was looking like he might need a parachute. Coming up, Jimmy Hoffa evades criminal charges again. Now back to the story. From the 1930s to the 1950s, Jimmy Hoffa steadily climbed the Teamsters Labor Union's ranks. But that power came with a price. Thanks to Jimmy's connection to the Italian Mafia, he became Senator Bobby Kennedy and the McClellan Committee's number one target. And in 1957, Bobby finally caught 44-year-old Jimmy red-handed in a bribe attempt. In June of that year, Jimmy was met in court by a predominantly black jury. The jury's composition was in his favor. 
Jimmy was a public supporter of Martin Luther King Jr. and was also known for refusing to segregate the Teamsters by race. And Jimmy also knew how to manipulate people in his favor. After learning of the primarily black jury, Jimmy had a black female lawyer join his legal team. He also had the black boxer, Joe Lewis, flown in to hug him in front of the jury. Thanks to this publicity, black newspapers ran ads praising Jimmy for being an advocate of civil rights. And it all worked in Jimmy's favor. He pled not guilty and was acquitted of the bribery charges. Jimmy's attorney later sent a gift-wrapped box to Bobby Kennedy, a toy parachute for his jump from the Capitol building. Meanwhile, Jimmy went back to running the Teamsters Union. He selected a man named Frank Fitzsimmons as his vice president, mainly because Fitz was easy to control and would do exactly as Jimmy said. Jimmy also promoted Tony, Tony Pro Provenzano, member of the Genovese crime family, to vice president of the New Jersey Teamsters faction. The AFL-CIO, or the American Federation of Labor and Congress of Industrial Organizations, was not happy about Tony Pro's new position. In fact, they threatened to kick the Teamsters out of the Union Federation unless Jimmy reversed his decision. Instead, Jimmy responded by giving Tony Pro another salary raise. So, in December of 1957, the AFL-CIO fulfilled their promise and removed the Teamsters from their federation. But Jimmy and the Teamsters didn't need the AFL-CIO to back them up. Around the time they got kicked out of the organization... Italian Mafia Don, Russell Buffalino, introduced his best hitman to the Teamsters. Frank, the Irishman Sheeran, was a six-foot-four truck driver with an intimidating presence, and after years of odd jobs and running scams, Sheeran wanted to join a union to secure a nest egg for his family. Sheeran was just the kind of guy Jimmy was looking for. When they spoke over the phone, Jimmy said... I heard you paint houses. Meaning he'd painted a few walls red with blood. Sharon responded, I do my own carpentry work, too. He also hid the bodies. Jimmy told Sharon to report to Local 299 in Detroit the very next day. Sharon was tasked with organizing strikes and intimidating strike breakers with his size. He also became the Teamsters' go-to hitman. He performed well and didn't ask questions, which earned Jimmy's respect. But Frank Sheeran couldn't protect Jimmy from Bobby Kennedy. Even after escaping the bribery charge, Jimmy was buried under an avalanche of lawsuits for various alleged misdeeds. A typical day for Jimmy Hoffa was spending the morning in court, waging war against Bobby Kennedy. After lunch, he headed over to the local 299 office, answered phone calls, and organized union members. Many were impressed with Jimmy's composure as he navigated numerous trials and talked his way out of difficult situations. It seemed like nothing could bring him down. That is, until John F. Kennedy was elected president of the United States in 1960. He appointed his brother Bobby as the attorney general, giving Jimmy's nemesis shared control over the FBI along with J. Edgar Hoover. 
Before JFK's presidency, the FBI's main focus was eradicating communism in the U.S. But Bobby Kennedy still had his sights set on Jimmy Hoffa and organized crime. So Bobby created the Get Hoffa Squad. It was composed of prosecutors and investigators dedicated to taking down Jimmy Hoffa. With the Hoffa Squad's resources at Bobby Kennedy's fingertips, he was able to dig up dirt from Jimmy's past. In 1962, Bobby hit 49-year-old Jimmy with another indictment. This time, it was over a shady practice Jimmy started all the way back in 1949. That year, Jimmy and his friend, Owen Burt Brennan, created a car hauling company called Test Fleet. But they didn't want to be associated with their new business. Jimmy and Brennan registered it under their wives' maiden names to avoid detection. They probably did it to go behind the Teamsters Union's back. When the union striked against a service called Commercial Carriers, Test Fleet crossed the picket lines and took over its operations. Not only was Jimmy betraying his own union, he made a massive profit doing so. The Hoffas and Brennans made close to $125,000 off a mere $4,000 investment. That's a $1.3 million profit today. And the Teamsters had no idea their faithful leader was involved. Test Fleet shut down in 1957, possibly because Jimmy didn't want his past to haunt him once he became union president. But he didn't hide his tracks well enough. Five years later, Bobby Kennedy discovered the truth. He accused Jimmy of violating the Taft-Hartley Act, which forbade employers from paying off union representatives. Essentially, Bobby claimed that commercial carriers paid Jimmy off by hiring Test Fleet. However, Jimmy refused to go down without a fight. Even though he was only facing misdemeanor charges, he didn't want Bobby Kennedy to beat him. So Jimmy hired the best legal team possible. He had a successful Supreme Court lawyer, Tommy Osborne, along with attorney Bill Bufalino, the cousin of the mob boss who introduced Jimmy to Frank the Irishman, Sheeran. But even with his crack legal team, Jimmy wasn't confident he'd emerge unscathed. So he decided to dabble in jury tampering to guarantee his name was cleared. Except... Jimmy made the mistake of telling Louisiana Teamster Edward Grady Parton his plans. Parton had a criminal history, so Jimmy thought he could trust him with his own crimes. Apparently, that wasn't the case. Parton reported Jimmy to Walter Sheridan, Bobby Kennedy's closest confidant on the Get Hoffa squad. All the while, Jimmy was trying to bribe his way to an acquittal. First, he tried to pay off an insurance broker who held a seat on the jury. Except this juror went to the judge and said his neighbor offered him $10,000 to vote for acquittal. Today, this would be worth about $85,000. The man was quickly excused and replaced. Next, Jimmy attempted to bribe a Tennessee state trooper whose wife was on the panel, the trooper accepted the bribe from Jimmy's camp, but was caught by an FBI agent. His wife was also excused from the jury. The last straw was when a juror claimed a union business agent visited his son in Detroit. That business agent, 
obviously working for Jimmy, offered the juror's son $10,000 as well. He even gave him half as a down payment. That juror was also excused. Jimmy had no idea that Parton had betrayed him. Instead, Jimmy was convinced the government was wiretapping him. By May 9th, 1963, the court had enough evidence of jury tampering to turn that little misdemeanor into a felony. But on June 4th of that year, things escalated further. Jimmy was also indicted for the fraudulent misuse of the Central States Pension Fund. Jimmy had invested the trucker's pension money into a land development called Sun Valley. He said it was a place for the Teamsters to retire, but he had allegedly taken more than $400,000 from the fund to build the community. That's $3 million today. Sun Valley was a swampy piece of land that was hard to manage. The development quickly went bankrupt, which led Jimmy to take another $500,000 from the pension just to earn the investment back. And Bobby Kennedy caught him with his hand in the cookie jar. Now, Jimmy was facing charges of fraud, conspiracy, and jury tampering. Jimmy's lawyers had the jury tampering trial postponed until January 1964 so they could prepare their wiretapping argument. Meanwhile, Jimmy's attorney, Tommy Osborne, was disbarred for tampering with the test fleet case. With him off the legal team, things were looking dire for Jimmy. But on November 22, 1963, the day after Osborne's disbarring, President John F. Kennedy was assassinated in Dallas, Texas. Upon hearing the news, Jimmy distastefully responded by standing on a chair in a restaurant declaring, quote, I hope the worms eat his eyes out. And the day of John F. Kennedy's memorial, Jimmy Hoffa went on national television to attack the government for disbarring Osborne. There were no condolences for the Kennedy family. In fact, Jimmy was so callous, Bobby Kennedy suspected he and the mafia could be behind his brother's assassination. Many conspiracy theorists shared the same suspicion. After JFK tried to overthrow Cuban leader Fidel Castro in 1961, many of the mafia's casinos in Havana were shut down, which meant they had a motive. Jimmy and his team of mobsters could have easily paid off the assassin, Lee Harvey Oswald, to make the hit. But there wasn't any concrete evidence to connect Jimmy to JFK's assassination. However, Bobby had plenty of ammo for Jimmy's upcoming trial. When Jimmy's jury tampering trial arrived in January 1964, the prosecution delivered a surprise witness Louisiana Teamster Edward Grady Parton. For the first time, Jimmy realized there was a mole in his midst. In the defense room at the courthouse, the ever-so-calm Jimmy Hoffa lost his composure. Jimmy screamed at his attorneys. He threw chairs across the courtroom. He cursed out members of the committee. But his little tantrum didn't help his case. On March 4, 1964, Jimmy Hoffa was found guilty of jury tampering in the Test Fleet case. That was quickly followed by another guilty verdict for conspiracy and fraud in the Sun Valley case. 
Jimmy Hoffa was sentenced to 13 years at the Lewisburg Federal Penitentiary in Pennsylvania, which meant the Union King had to rescind his Teamster throne, but not without a fight. Coming up, Jimmy Hoffa's long list of enemies comes back to haunt him. Now, back to the story. In 1964, 51-year-old Jimmy Hoffa was sentenced to 13 years in prison for jury tampering, fraud, and conspiracy while acting as Teamster Union president. At first, Jimmy maintained his role as president while behind bars. But it wasn't easy. Phone calls weren't allowed, and the only letters he could write were to his family. So Jimmy tasked the union's vice president, Frank Fitzsimmons, with taking over the day-to-day operations. Fortunately, Jimmy's son, 26-year-old James P. Hoffa, worked as an attorney for the Teamsters. Jimmy relayed information to Fitz and the union directly through James Jr. Fitz was easy to control, but that's because he was completely checked out. While Fitz was in charge, the Mafia withdrew more money from the pension fund than ever before. If the union didn't regain some control soon, it could be in serious danger. Jimmy felt like he was the only one who could save it, and if he played his cards right, he could reclaim the presidency and get released from prison. In 1967, Jimmy's attorney, Morris Schenker, devised a get-out-of-jail-free plan. Schenker was going to secure a presidential pardon from Richard Nixon on Jimmy's behalf. But that would only work if Nixon was elected. So, Jimmy's team gave regular contributions to Nixon's campaign to help things along. In fact, Jimmy was so focused on his potential release... He barely noticed when Bobby Kennedy was fatally shot on June 5th, 1968. Unlike his celebration when JFK died, Jimmy made no public mention of Bobby's death. On top of the pardon scheme, Jimmy was also busy with prison politics. His longtime Teamster ally, Tony Pro from the Genovese crime family, was also at Lewisburg State Penitentiary for extortion. One day in the cafeteria, Tony Pro asked Jimmy for help. As a member of the Teamsters Union, Tony Pro wanted to make sure he could still receive his pension once he was released. Jimmy said he wanted to help, but crimes like extortion made Tony Pro ineligible to collect his pension. Even as union president, there was nothing Jimmy could do. Tony Pro took this personally. He knew Jimmy had access to the funds in the past, so the excuse wasn't good enough. Tony Pro responded by threatening to rip Jimmy's guts out if he didn't help, but Jimmy wasn't afraid. Tony Pro was influential in the mafia, but he had less sway than Jimmy. With powerful dons like Russell Bufalino on Jimmy's side, Tony Pro wouldn't do anything rash. Even so, Jimmy and Tony Pro's relationship was permanently fractured. However, just because Jimmy didn't help Tony Pro, that didn't mean he wasn't still involved with the Teamsters Union. In early 1971, Jimmy was denied parole because he was still wheeling and dealing for the Teamsters. If he wanted parole, he had to give up his title as president. And Jimmy considered it, 
until Frank Fitzsimmons announced his intention to run for Teamsters president in the next election. Jimmy was infuriated. He felt betrayed by his own puppet. But in April 1971, a family tragedy gave Jimmy the opening he needed. When his wife, Josephine, had a heart attack, Jimmy was given permission to visit her in the hospital. Jimmy used a temporary release to meet with his fellow union leaders as well. It's unclear what they discussed, but many believed it had to do with Richard Nixon and Jimmy's presidential pardon. Now that Nixon was president, it was time for him to thank Jimmy for his generous campaign contributions. But apparently the wheels still needed greasing. In May 1971, union hitman Frank the Irishman Sheeran got a call from Mafia Don Russell Bufalino. He needed Sheeran to make a delivery. Sheeran was sent to the Hilton Hotel in Washington, D.C. with a suitcase containing half a million dollars. A few minutes after arriving in the lobby, President Nixon's attorney general, John Mitchell, sat down beside him. Mitchell then took the suitcase and said, nothing comes cheap. He then got up and left Sheeran alone in the lobby. As Sheeran told it in his book, I Heard You Paint Houses, he was certain the money was a bribe for Jimmy's pardon. However, Sheeran and Jimmy weren't the only ones bribing the Nixon administration. Frank Fitzsimmons also sent half a million dollars. He claimed the money was for Jimmy's release, but it came with a stipulation. Fitz wanted a guarantee that Jimmy couldn't run against him for Teamsters president. Allegedly, that money was provided to Fitz from Tony Pro. It was revenge for Jimmy not helping him with his pension. Jimmy knew not to look a gift horse in the mouth. He agreed to step down as union president, hoping it would secure his release. He'd deal with Fitz once he was free. But in the summer of 1971, the parole board once again denied Jimmy's release. They still suspected that Jimmy was involved with organized crime. He had resigned for nothing. After Jimmy's parole was denied, Fitz publicly urged Nixon to pardon Jimmy Hoffa. Now that Jimmy was barred from running for Teamsters president until 1980, he no longer posed a threat. On December 16, 1971, Jimmy's attorney filed a petition for a presidential pardon. The pardon skipped the usual authorization process from the Justice Department and the FBI. Instead, it was expedited and approved by Nixon's Attorney General, John Mitchell, who had accepted the suitcase full of cash from Frank Sheeran. Jimmy was released from prison on December 23, 1971, but he wasn't ready to relax and enjoy his freedom. He wanted his old job back. In 1973, Jimmy announced his plans to challenge the rule in Nixon's pardon that prevented him from running for union president. His timing was perfect. That same year, the Watergate scandal broke. Nixon was too busy trying to save his own skin to deal with Jimmy Hoffa. In all the chaos, the terms of Jimmy's pardon were all but forgotten. So Jimmy was ready to challenge Fitz in the 1976 union election, but first he needed the support of his enemy, Tony Pro. Since Tony Pro headed so many local branches, 
whichever candidate he supported would probably win. Except, Tony Pro and the other members of the mafia involved with the Teamsters didn't want Jimmy as president. Fitz let them withdraw whatever they wanted from the pension fund. If Jimmy won, they were worried he'd tighten the purse strings again. Things came to a head on October 18, 1974, at Frank Sheeran's birthday celebration at Philadelphia's Latin Casino. Jimmy and many prominent mobsters were in attendance. Tony Pro had already convinced his fellow mob members to not support Jimmy's candidacy. So that evening, Mafia Don Russell Bufalino sat down with Jimmy and calmly told him not to run for re-election. Jimmy bristled at Bufalino's advice. This was everything he had worked towards. He was willing to do whatever it took to win. Even if it meant exposing the Teamsters' criminal associations under Fitz's regime. Bufalino didn't take kindly to Jimmy's threats. Yet Sheeran tried to defend his friend, saying that it was only Jimmy puffing. He wouldn't rat them out. Would he? Turns out, Sheeran was wrong. Jimmy showed him a list of records that tied the mafia to the Teamsters. He was serious about exposing them. Frank had no choice but to tell Bufalino. Several months passed and neither side budged. Eventually, Jimmy may have realized that his gambit failed. On July 28, 1975, he told Frank Sheeran that he was ready to squash the feud with the Mafia. To that end, Jimmy set a meeting with Tony Pro and Tony Jack Giacalone of the Detroit Mob. It was to take place on July 30th at the Matches Red Fox restaurant in the Detroit suburbs. Sheeran advised Jimmy to bring his little brother, meaning his gun. Jimmy asked Sheeran to join him instead. Sheeran agreed, but when he tried to run it by his boss, Russell Bufalino, he was told to stay back. At 2 p.m. on July 30th, Jimmy pulled into the Matches Red Fox's parking lot. The restaurant was in a busy shopping center. Jimmy believed Tony Pro wouldn't pull a dangerous stunt with so many people around. However, the mobsters never showed. Frustrated, Jimmy crossed to a nearby hardware store to use the payphone. First, he called a Teamster buddy named Louis Linto and told him he was stood up. Then he called his wife, Josephine, to say he'd be home by 4 p.m. Jimmy crossed back to the parking lot when a burgundy Mercury Marquis pulled up beside him. Three unidentified men chatted with Jimmy before he willingly got in the car. And that was the last time anyone saw Jimmy Hoffa. Next week, we'll take a look at several theories as to what happened to Jimmy Hoffa. Theory number one, the FBI killed Jimmy, so he didn't expose Nixon's ties to Frank Fitzsimmons and the mob. Theory number two, Jimmy was killed by a serial killer named Richard the Iceman Kuklinski, who was responsible for over 100 deaths in the area. Theory number three, Jimmy's closest confidant, Frank the Irishman Sheeran, was sent by the mafia to kill Jimmy. The FBI has dug up 15 different sites in search of Jimmy Hoffa's body, but it has yet to be found. 
Some believe he was dismembered in the Florida Everglades or pushed out of a plane over Lake Michigan, maybe even crushed in a car compactor and sold with scrap metal. But the question is, who is the one to blame? tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with part two of Jimmy Hoffa. Among many sources, we found I Heard You Paint Houses by Charles Brandt to be helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler. It is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Dick Schroeder. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joshua Kern. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Taylor Bright, with writing assistance by Maggie Admire, and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. (music) 